Hello and welcome to Season 2 of the Chai Break Podcast. This is your host, Shweta Ravi Shankar. And Ramachari from New York City. This season, we're excited to interview a roster of amazing South Asian women who have broken barriers, questioned norms, and continue to make a mark for themselves. They come to you from all over the globe, from Bangalore to New York, Melbourne and everywhere in between. We hope you enjoy these conversations as much as we do and chime in along the way. So let's get started. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Chai Break Podcast. Hi, Rama. How are you? I'm good, Shweta. I was just uh, talking offline to Shweta about uh, the day, the morning, how it started. So I just woke up. I had a great meditation this morning for 30 minutes, then went out for a run and got back um, just in time to do a class for my trainings. And now we're jumping into a podcast. So <laughs> I like these days. I would say this is a great start to a day. Yeah. What do you think? Productive. <laughs> productive. <laughs> That's awesome. So Brahma, as you know, sustainability and sustainable fashion is very close to my heart, right? Mm-hmm. And for those of you who don't know and haven't heard yet, in our season one of the Chai Break podcast, episodes seven, eight, and nine, do give it a listen. We did a three-part series on sustainability and sustainable living and how it's rooted in Indian culture and a whole lot more. But why am I saying this? Because our guest today is Shweta Mudgal, a social entrepreneur and founder of a sustainable, ethical, fair trade clothing brand called 8,000 Miles. Rama, do you want to introduce her to our audience? Absolutely. It would be my pleasure to introduce Shweta Mudgal. Shweta is an architect, an airport designer by training, actually, and she turned to be a social entrepreneur when she founded 8,000 Miles, which is, like Shweta mentioned, a sustainable, ethically handmade line of children's and adults' lifestyle collection that places social impact at the core of its business model. And she started this in 2014 in Mumbai, India, which is why I think the 8,000 Miles uh, kind of is the name because of her travels between the U.S. to Mumbai and back and forth. It's actually a really fascinating name, Shweta. We'll talk about it. Um, 8,000 Miles prints and patterns are drawn and conceptualized by her in New York. It's hand-blocked, printed, or hand-woven by ancient artisan communities, and it's soon into apparel by small women-empowered sewing collectives in India. All their products are uniquely designed, fair trade, and contribute directly to its social impact, and it's proudly made in India. So when Shweta is not traveling, which is not in either city, she loves gallivanting the globe, connecting people along the way. A social butterfly, I would say. Um, she calls herself, which I think is really, really the fun part. And I'm going to steal this line from you, Shweta. A part-time wife and mother and a full-time startup entrepreneur. Love that. Absolutely love that. <laughs> and she lives with her husband and daughter in Manhattan, New York. So, Shweta, welcome. Shweta with a Y. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Rama. Thank you, Shweta. This is such a pleasure being here, chatting with you too. It is truly an honor for us to chat with you as well. It's love the bio, love what you do, and can't <laughs> wait to talk more about it. I mean, I should actually try to steal your spelling because when <laughs> I heard, first heard that, I was like, wow, because I can never get people to pronounce our name, right? That's really And why, I think with yeah. the Y, it's, it makes so much sense. That's actually why the Y came in. Um, it was actually in, in, in Bombay, in India, when people still said Shweta growing up, right? Right. And actually, it's a Sanskrit word. It's Shweta. Yes. Um, but, you know, very, very few people know that they should be saying Shweta. So I think somewhere around like when I was 12 or 13, it really disturbed me. And I decided to ask why, for which I get um, mocked at by my best friends 
you know, ever since. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it really helps, especially more so here. Yes. When people who are non-Indian um, and they pronounce the Y, mm-hmm. they don't know what they're pronouncing it correctly. Right. That gives me an idea because my name is R-E-M-A, Rema. Yeah. But it's Rima many a times and sometimes it's Rema. So maybe I should do like a, <laughs> I keep telling it's R, it's Rema. So maybe I should instead like R-E, maybe in A-M-A, Rema. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, we're digressing. <laughs> With that said, Shweta, let's begin with like your growing up years in Mumbai, early influences and what led you to your eventual career choice. Would love to know more. Yeah, sure. So um, my mom's a teacher and, uh, you know, like most children of teachers, I always wanted to be a teacher growing up. But, uh, you know, as I grew older, I realized I was more tending and inclined towards the creative arts. Um, if I had to connect my journey in terms of how I ended up with 8,000 miles as a career choice, it's essentially, um, you know, all of us growing up in India at some point realized that we had uh, immense access to artisans and tailors. Mm-hmm. And it was always a pleasure to go around fabric scouting, uh, buying these like little cut pieces of one or two meter lengths, and then, you know, taking them to your tailor and getting them sold into kurtas for yourself. Mm-hmm. A pair of shorts, or trying to always think out of the box and see what you could make out of it. So I was doing something like that ever since I was, uh, again, 12 or 13, um, you know, going to our tailor and designing outfits and things like that. One of my favorite stories to tell is um, it was my best friend's birthday and uh, a bunch of us were thinking of what to get her, uh, at which point uh, I just realized that maybe it would be nice to upcycle something that exists within one of our friends' closets. And oh, wow. so we had a friend uh, force donate his old pair of jeans to us. I took it to a bag maker, uh, you know, the ones who have those machines mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. stronger needles, and uh, designed a bag, a backpack out of it, a denim backpack. Wow. And, you know, stuff like that was not done at that time, mm-hmm, I think, because mm-hmm. uh, now you see a lot of upcycling of, yes. you know, pants into different wear. But and then we gave it to my uh, best friend. She literally loved it. She used it in her in her engineering years. And, uh, you know, so somewhere down the line, I think that is what really uh, sowed the seed of um, doing stuff like this. And my mom has also been um, very, very handy all the time. She sewed, she knits. She, right, right. She doesn't do crochets. So uh, I think these were all these influences that really made a difference and somewhere have stayed. That's wonderful because what you're saying resonates with me completely. And I'm sure Shweta too, because growing up years, I remember in Chennai, there was this little street near, um, I think it's Egmore. Um, I don't know the name of the street back then. It was like so popular where all these, um, you know, the leftover garments, like people didn't use for stitching all of that used to, you know, these um, vendors used to sell these. Oh, you mean dead stock. It's called dead Yeah, dead stock. Yeah. Yeah. Correct, yeah. correct. And they used to sell in this one lane in Chennai. Mm-hmm. And it was so, and people used to come from all over and just buy because they used to sell it at like throwaway prices. Yeah. I still remember going there and buying some of those materials, just really good material. I used to like, you know, make dresses out of it. It was it was fun doing it. Yeah. yeah, I think the joy of like, you know, designing something with your tailor, whether it's your own design or like looking up a pattern book that they had, yeah. giving it to them and like coming back a few weeks later. This is what we talked about in our podcast in season one that just, you know, coming back that excitement, you know, right. it's, it's far more than, you know, when your package is shipped kind of thing, because that's the thing today. Like people are like, oh, when your package is shipped, like, you know, there's that joy. But no, like, you know, when you really when you know the work you've put into it and you 
go and pick it up it's the joy is like unparalleled yeah right. that was that was so much fun <laughs> but I, <laughs> i think that the not so fun part was the you know haggling with the tailors that's right <laughs> that <was not> fun. <laughs> yeah i mean you know the interesting part is and again my best friend and i uh, we have the same tailor because we grew up together yeah. in the same building so the tailor always had this like moral compass of how low and how high your neckline could be um you know so we we still joke about it because even now when sometimes one of us would wear a dress that's a little too low neck or something it'd be like you know our tailor would not have approved that's um funny. so so these are the things that you know how in india it kind of is everything is community driven yeah. yes so even these kind of like sort of morality was passed on to us by him and he would insist that no we need it to be 8 inches deep and he'd be like thank you satin exactly <laughs> so we would be like okay if you insist but you know so there was all of that but you know uh, circling back into the question you asked the other thing i i feel the reason we did all of this is a we had the availability of resources to do it because maybe we didn't sew ourselves so we we needed people to do it and there were many of them around willing to do it mm-hmm. but i think more than that it was some sort of an individuality or a streak of like uniqueness if you will that we all wanted um because when you went to the store you just found stuff that everybody was wearing Mm, that's right. Uh, and so I think it will it starts off with the idea of wanting to create something that was just you and nothing that looked like anyone else's or off the shelf. So Yeah, no, even today I feel like, you know, when you go to a Indian wedding and like you ask them, "Oh, where did you get this dress from or where did you get that blouse from?" you know, and it's almost like everyone has this one secret tailor or secret boutique that they don't want to reveal. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I totally get it. So you know I mean to you this might seem like seamless but for us like looking from the outside like architecture to fashion you know because you you were designing airports like can you talk us a little bit about that like how that happened Yeah yeah so uh, you know I went to a really intense architecture school in Mumbai which I think is also hugely responsible for the way I turned out eventually as an adult and you know I wouldn't change those 5 years for anything because the school really sort of ingrained in us the idea that and and the exposure to every form of creative art um and that essentially is also how undergrad architectural education works uh, in a good school when you will get exposed to very different creative arts because you do realize that architecture is sort of the mother of all of these right so the other mm-hmm. thing that you will see is eventually what happens is when you graduate from the school of course you graduate as an architect and you know how to design and keep a building up but you also uh, have a, along the line at some point done and dabbled in a bunch of different other creative arts mm-hmm. and being a creative person you don't ever just pursue one form of creativity um because it's it's just too less right so mm-hmm. <laughs> so then there's always this thing where people are like okay um you know I, but i'm i'm an architect but i do this too i am an architect but i do this too and then you know generally uh, i think overall if you look around and know any other architects in your life Uh, many a times you see that they don't only pursue parallel passions uh, but they also sometimes just completely flip careers and move on to other creative passions no i i i can second that because i have a friend who's an architect and she loves she's such a good um, she doodles right. and she creates all of these different things another is like a playground designer but she does something completely different on the side so right. yeah no i i see that Yeah. yeah so so they never just do one thing uh, and many a times you know the other thing sometimes takes over so i have friends who become movie stars or they've become like theater you know uh, directors play directors or playwrights even they people have written a book 
I know friends who've continued to stay in the profession, but become like staging artists and, um, you know, influencers even today. So like, it's a variety. I think it opened things up. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Airport design happened sort of by accident mm-hmm. because I was looking for a job post 9-11. In okay. okay. And it wasn't really, um, you know, my choice. So my first, uh, you know, proper job after graduating from my master's degree was in an office that did largely transit-oriented projects. Mm -hmm. And that's how I landed in transit designs and airports were there like forte. Mm -hmm. So I spent a a decade of my architectural career after graduation uh, in designing airports because, you know, once you design airports, you continue to design airports. Mm-hmm. And it was it was fascinating, obviously, because, you know, when you it's like what you said, when you hear someone designs airports, you're like, oh, wow, like everyone's always been like, wow, that's amazing. It's huge. Um, as a designer, it's not very satisfying because it takes a very long time to come through. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I while I did get my dream airport design project through my airport design days, um, you know, it, it took five to six years just to see it being built. And which what airport was that? This was Mumbai Airport. Mumbai? Awesome. Yeah. I mean, that's your second love. (laughs) It's an awesome airport. Exactly. (laughs) To me, that was just like, you know, you get to design. I was living in New York City. I had the opportunity to work on the design team uh, that was designing Mumbai Airport. And as part of that, go back and forth. Um, And that is also where 8,000 Miles started because the idea of being able to go back to where I'm from and come back to where I live now was mm-hmm. also a really uh, a fun stage of life to, you know, sort of intersperse both of these culturally, but also understand that they're both, you know, very, very unique places in their own, in that sense. Mm-hmm. So that's how airport design. And then, you know, all of this just led to doing something that I wanted to do because anything I did, I wanted to have social impact, right. be at the core of the business model. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so the idea was to start with fabric, and clothing and then sort of you know start off as this was my small scale and then go up to almost home and even designing spaces um like upholstery and table linen and things like that so oh, which wow. we've kind of are reaching there now okay that's so it's just like the sml excel of you know of designing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um so in that sense it's not very far i always tell people when they ask me the difference is, you know, we were we were measuring spaces then, where I'm measuring fabric now. Right, it's right. Just, it's an extension you know, almost, an rather extension. than a diversion, right? Yeah. Right, right, yeah. yeah. But it's been also a huge learning curve because I don't know how to cut fabric. I don't mm. know how textile design works. So in that sense, not to take away from people who've done this in sort of school, um, I do realize that I lack that because I've had to have a huge curve just teaching myself all of that. So, I mean, it's very interesting to me because, I mean, uh, if you don't, I actually work in the retail space. So, you know, and that's kind of like knowing the practices in retail, which are not environmentally friendly is what led me to, you know, become more, you know, conscious and uh, have a sustainable lifestyle. So, I mean, when starting the brand, like how did you go about like, you know, choosing your uh, artisans and uh, you especially talk about the social impact you have? Can you talk us through a little bit about that process? Sure. So I literally, this was when we were based in Mumbai for a year. We did a global mobility uh, situation with my husband's work. Uh, this was after my airport days of going back and forth between Mumbai and New York. And we realized that, you know, why live in just one city when you can live in both? 
So we had this opportunity to do this gig through his work, which also was uh, pretty fabulous because we got a couple of years in Asia out of it. Uh, one year in Singapore and then the other year in Mumbai. And the year in Mumbai in 2014 is when I started 8,000 Miles. So at that point, when I was based in Mumbai, I had assumed it would be very easy to find sewing cooperatives or little organizations that you know were NGOs and things like that. I took a list and I literally sat cold calling, you know, every number. Mm-hmm. Uh, surprisingly, many, very few people responded. Um, and very few people were open to the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also not something that people were, again, increasingly doing at that time. 2014 was the year when people were just starting this whole pop-up exhibition culture in India. And so, you know, it was not something, you know, if I approached an NGO, they were either skeptical to do it, they weren't sure if their women would have the skill set. And so they weren't very receptive. Um, but one of them responded mm-hmm. and put me in touch with the lady who runs our workshop now. Um, and the lady was also very enterprising. She'd taken a loan. She just graduated from sewing school. She had taken a loan from her uncle to set up her own machines. And she was taking on small you know, gigs in the uh, little town that she lived in. Mm-hmm. So when she and I met, I think that was a huge meeting of mind situation for us too, because she got me. And that's how we started. So eventually then the NGO sort of just dissolved. Um, mm-hmm. But the lady stuck around because she said, you know, I can do this on my own now. And I was very happy to support another woman entrepreneur in the process. And so that's literally how this whole thing started in Mumbai. So she's, uh, you know, luckily in between, of course, because she couldn't scale up to production and we got very busy. We had to go out and seek other sewing units as well. But many a times sewing units that this is sort of one of the handicaps of our business model and sometimes forces us to think outside of what we've designed ourselves to be, that when you say you will not work with a commercial sewing unit, you'll work only with people you know or people who you know this is making a change in their lives, you realize that there are very few such people who are willing to give you that chance and opportunity as well. Mm-hmm. And many a times NGOs just sort of fizzle out, especially in India, you know, because they mm-hmm. don't have people like their trustees and their donors just lose interest and they just dissolve. So at some point, it became very, very, uh, you know, important for us to just sort of set up our own little workshop, which now has this vetting, you know, sort of system of whom to get in, whom not to get in. How does work happen? Does it get taken home and things like that? Mm. Because don't you have a unit in Jaipur, if I'm not wrong? No. So in Jaipur is where we make our fabric. Ah. In Jaipur, I don't have a unit that's my own. I work with a really um, very, very skilled artisan family that has been in the hand block printing business for four generations oh wow that's so beautiful yeah so they i work with them and they are actually also the people i set up a relationship with with a similar way by just cold calling various units in jaipur i went there remember took my mom with me thinking we'd make a trip out of this and then eventually just became like going from one village to the other trying to talk people into working with me as a new business, nobody wanted to take the chance because they were like, oh, you can't offer us minimum orders. You can't offer us a bulk printing, you know, confirmation. So I don't know if we want to work with you. Mm. Uh, this unit said yes. And we've stuck around even today. So, oh, that's really nice. Yeah. I mean, you know, we just talked about your brand being like sustainable and ethical and fair trade for someone who wants to go the sustainable route in terms of their buying habits but they can't really tell what this is. Can you explain in simple terms what it means and, uh, you know, how you pick the practices you did, you know, to build this brand on these uh, values? 
Sure, sure. So to me, I work only in cotton. And I think cotton is a sustainable fabric, right? It is a fabric that is eco-friendly. It is a fabric that's natural. And uh, to me, it's also one of the best fabrics to be sporting, uh, irrespective of the weather, because of the way it just works in terms of, you know, aerating the body and just keeping it cool or warm and, you know, things like that. Right. Of course, you can layer it up. But to me, cotton is really king. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so that's one way in which we sort of anchor sustainability. The other way that we do this is we make sure that we know where our sources are coming from, where our cotton is being sourced from. Mm-hmm. We know the people that are working uh, with us in doing all of this work. Okay, We celebrate and revive the fact that this is a sustainable practice because of uh, the block printing processes that we've been supporting, which are actually soon to be extinct, including the, the house that I work with in Jaipur, which... The fifth generation is going to school naturally, but is also planning to leave the mm. village. So I think sustainability also operates in different levels on that sense, because you're trying to sustain a culture and sustain an art form that has existed forever and is soon to die if you don't help it to you know, keep itself alive. I also think we, we also design as a strategy, design our fabrics to be uh, very sort of overall loosely fit. And the reason for that is because we don't want our customers to shop more. We want them to shop smart. Right. Because we choose cotton, it also works really well. The way we print our fabrics, the dyes we use, it works really well to pass on to generations. So I have personal stories where my daughter's clothing has gone, and she's soon to be 11 now, but has gone to actually someone who's a newborn baby last year. Oh. That's um, wonderful. So, but it, and it survived without a tear, without color bleeds, without mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. So to me, sustainability is longevity. Mm-hmm. It is making sure that clothing can go down the route of not being, uh, you know, added to sort of a landfill, but more so to kind of be sent to people and, you know, just passed down to people. Yeah. So I think that's, yeah, these are various ways in which we try to, you know, create sustainability in our practice and keep it alive in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, a part of our, our design uh, is also to revive older fabrics. So we'll, uh, we actually use saris and we, and we do quilts. Mm-hmm. We'll use old discarded saris to use as layers between the two, uh, you know, the printed layers of the quilt. Mm-hmm. So we're also ups- using older fabrics to keep them, uh, you know, sort of going and if they're in good condition. And even the last scraps of our uh, production are where our sewing workshop don't go to waste. We end up making a lot of things with it or we have donated to a practice that will use that chindi, as it's called, to utilize for making accessories or sometimes even doormats and, you know, smaller things. Oh, that's wonderful. Shweta, I had a quick question. So I'm curious about the learning curve that you mentioned because... You know, it's something that um, one of the things that Shweta, Shweta knows about it uh, for me as well, starting something like this was very near and dear to me. But always what was shied me away was I just don't know anything about this. So when you said you're learning curve, you had to learn how to cut and sew, you know, the measurements and stuff. How did you do that? So I didn't have to learn how to cut. And so I wish I had done that. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably going to be working towards doing it. But what I had to learn is, you know, Textile design is not like graphic design. Mm -hmm. And graphic design is relatively, again, relatively easier than textile design because you can just print what you want and you see it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Textile design varies because it's on fabric. So the base is different. 
The way your prints work on fabric are very different. Print multiples, print repeats are a thing that I had to teach myself because I design all the prints on our, uh, you know, line. Mm-hmm. But I also, so that was one learning curve to just sort of understand the textile uh, design and printing aspect. Uh, if a print runs in a certain way, some of our prints, if you see on our Instagram, will always run in a unidirectional way. Mm-hmm. I am then told by my tailors that it's very hard to cut this because you have to then cut and lay out the pattern in such a way that it can only be done in one way upside, in a, you know, a mm-hmm. top up sort of a position. Mm-hmm. Um, this is very different than if I did a print which is very uh, generic and is rotated 360 degrees because then you can cut the fabric anyway and it's also more sustainable in that sense because you can use the smallest fabric in doing that. Yeah. So this also has then altered my way of designing prints because I realized that it's not a sustainable practice if we're going to waste a lot just because we want the print to be the correct way up. And so, you know, these are the things. So this was one learning curve on the design aspect. But even just entrepreneurship, right? Like in general, the the curve that came with that was completely a huge wave that just mm-hmm. hit. To which I was like, I had these small steps that I took, mm-hmm. but I realized that this was going to be such a big deal because I started off as a small business, which was in, in India. It was always the plan to bring it here to the US. Um, but as I mentioned, you know, pop up culture became a big thing in in Mumbai at the time and in other big cities. So I got sort of tempted to, you know, started selling, start selling in India, mm-hmm. where we took mm-hmm. off and people appreciated cotton and, you know, fun, contemporary, quirky prints on them. And so then the first three to four years of the business, I was working between Mumbai, uh, mm-hmm. you know, retail shows and the US. Mm-hmm. So that itself was a huge curve. And that's why I say it's part time wife and mother, because I was just gone all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even now, like when it's work, I'm just gone all the time. I really don't like turn around and look behind. I just need to make sure as an adult in my daughter's life when I leave. Um, so that that's, you know, the other learning curve that really sort of hit me like a wave. And then we started uh, wholesaling mostly mm-hmm. uh, about three years ago. So that was the other learning curve because I had to teach myself how to make line sheets. I didn't even know what a line sheet was. <laughs> That's my world. <laughs> and then, you know, so then I'm like teaching myself these softwares. I've photographed my styles myself. I've done photo shoots on my own. Mm-hmm. I've had friends who've been happy enough to help me do photo shoots. So at some point, you know, as you probably, uh, you know, understand and know, being an entrepreneur is being everything from pune to proprietor. Yeah. And yeah. it was it was like, it still is, you know, it still is. So this learning curve has just been crazy immense, not just in a new like industry, but also just in general, I think, uh, you know, running a business. Mm-hmm. That is wonderful. I mean, so it looks like it's one of the challenges is actually the mindset, right? Because I'm sure there have been moments when you're like, what am I doing? And there have been moments when you might have just like, did you have any of those? Um, when you talk about ups and downs, what was the biggest challenge? you um you know the i think our uh the fact that we've chosen to stick with small sewing units mm-hmm. becomes a challenge for us because many a times you know if we decide we're sticking to them for a reason sometimes the people working with us don't see that mm-hmm. uh, they see it when we have a lot of orders and when we're like you know really sort of scheduled to work hard and do things but i think their social lives still take over like they still need to eat lunch every day for an hour which is not wrong but mm-hmm. There are days when you're probably working through lunch and we all do that here, don't we? Mm-hmm. Things like that will not happen there. It doesn't matter what day of the week it is, if there's a deadline or not, 
we will still make sure we eat our lunch. We take a long break. We will go ahead and take like these smoke breaks. We will go ahead and celebrate every festival on the calendar. And, you know, we will have to do so. I, you know, while I, I'm all for this, because I understand being a woman myself, how important and integral it is to have support. What I don't see is it just doesn't become uh, something that you can actually, you know, do every single day without having to risk the way things work, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that I think is something that is also a very big challenge that I constantly face. Yeah, and I think that's where you, you know, you wear the entrepreneur hat and you know how important and critical these deadlines are. Whereas, right. you know, the people in your units working day in and day out, for them, it's just another day. Right. Mm-hmm. It's amazing that, you know, in all of this, you have a family and you've juggled family and, uh, like you say, part-time wife and mother and a full-time entrepreneur. Yeah. You know, this is really going to be interesting because there are so many aspiring entrepreneurial women out there. One of the things that we women, and we've talked about this in our previous podcast as well, there's always this, you know, oh, this guilt factor that comes along, especially when you have a child and you, you know, you always want to be there for the kid, want to be there for the family, but then have this, you know, interest in life that you want to pursue a career. So it's always been the challenge uh, for women and hearing stories like yours is definitely going to be inspiring to those women who want to do something similar like you do. So how did you work through the family dynamics? Um, So, you know, I don't know. I sometimes think that, like you mentioned, how new mothers feel guilty about the fact that we have this baby now who we're having to take care of and um and you know maybe not work or yeah. or have to alternate with work. I also felt the opposite. I felt guilty that I had to give up my work because somebody new has come into my life. No, right? that's amazing. I mean I think you need to normalize this conversation. This is gold yeah. right there. Because but, you yeah. know I really for me it was all about like hey I have a great career right now. And, you know, I am able to like go where I need to go, do what I have to do without having to be like this primary caregiver to somebody. And I don't mean this in a way where it's really, uh, you know, horrible for my newborn. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. But, you know, there was nothing. Wrong. And again, I was privileged enough to have the ability to hire help to take care of her. Mm-hmm. Uh, because my husband and I both were working. My husband was almost, uh, you know, traveling for three to four days out of the five-day work week. Um, and so we we were really never there. Mm-hmm. So except for probably the first year of our daughter's life, and of course, the first pandemic year that we had, all of us, I don't think we've really ever spent that much time with her mm-hmm. and realized it. Because what, what made us realize is that this is just something we couldn't do. We we had to get external help for this. We had to get people who could come, uh, you know, have a nanny who could who could sort of be with her. And and if we normalize that because you know we were like, how else is this going to happen? We live yeah. in a country where our parents and don't live with us. Exactly. We don't have exactly. family. Yes. We have nobody to call family in this country. We just have really good thick set of friends mm-hmm. who are our mm-hmm. like our friends turn family here. And these are the friends that actually have stayed over the years of her life because now, ever since I started 8,000 Miles, which is when she was uh, two, um, when we were in Mumbai, mm-hmm. 
And we came back and I was doing this back and forth between the miles in both the countries. What I did realize was that this was a, a, a huge boon to us. The fact that we were okay being the, these people, mm-hmm. actually letting um, a friend stay with our daughter overnight or have our daughter go stay at a friend's house overnight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we just literally, it took a village for us to raise mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. And that also made it really, really uh, special for us because these were, you know, friends who have now become family to us because they chose to take care of our daughters. Yeah. They just yeah. took her into their lives like nobody's business. And they just made her into what, you know, she was. And to us, that is how we wanted to raise her. We wanted her to be independent. And I think that's what we've achieved over the last 10 years. Is, uh, you know, there have been, I, we still talk about it in a very funny way. There have been nights, the three of us have been in three different countries. <laughs> and she was like six or seven at the time, mm-hmm. you know, uh-huh. and she wasn't with a family member. She was with a friend who was given her health insurance card and always told that whatever happens, we trust your judgment. I mean, that's really, really amazing. That's so good. Yeah. So this is how we chose to rear her because, you know, she's the only one. But yeah, we have careers and we have things we want to do. And and that runs the course till today. Unless, of course, it's a very important day in her life or if it's a very important phase. And on my birthday one year, I was on my way to India and I realized that she was more sad than I was because I was going to have a working birthday. And so she made a small request and she said, can you try to just be around on your birthday? And I was like, okay, you know, that's something I can work around. So it's fine. So these are the, to me, that's a very small adjustment. Yeah. Um, But that's literally how we made things to be. So, you know, I I just want to say that, you know, women like you um, kind of inspire other women to stop having that uh, mom guilt. Because there is never the dad guilt is not talked about and it all, I don't even know if it exists. But, you know, especially because doing everything you're doing, being this entrepreneur, you know, doing all of these things, you're actually being a great role model to your child, you know. And I think um, people don't, I mean, mothers, young mothers, especially, they don't realize that because they always hold it down to like, oh, I have to be there. You know, I'm guilty. I'm not here. I'm not there. But like when your child actually sees you going out and achieve these things, it kind of sets the example that, you know, age and, you know, having a child or whatever that is, is no bar, you know, to achieving what you want. Kudos to you, Shweta. I think this is literally the reason why we are doing this podcast, because we want to really meet people like you. I mean, you know, I've learned a thing or two from this discussion because there's always, you know, there is this, I think it's probably cultural growing up in India. You see a very strong um, maternal influence and, you know, you think this is the right thing to do, you know, always staying with the child, it's child's growing up. But hearing stories like you, is what is really needed to normalize this whole concept of yes, you can have family at the same time. You can have, you can totally support your dreams, and that is exactly what you've done. So kudos to you for really, really normalizing this, mm-hmm. not making it a taboo, which it still remains in some places. Where oh my god, you're doing this culturally, it's still there. So yeah. kudos to you, job well done. Yeah. I've learned a thing or two already. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think. It, it also stems from us being selfish, right? Like, and I always, I tell my daughters always the same thing every day that if I'm not going to be happy, you won't be happy. Correct. So I need to be contented, satisfied. And it comes through. It really, I mean, you, both of you have daughters. We are all three moms who have three daughters. And I mean, tomorrow you do anything, you blink differently and your daughter will catch it. She just knows it. Mm-hmm. I think the the bottom line is that, you know, if you don't teach this at home, there's no 
gonna learn. So, and like Shwata correctly said, if you have to be the role model for this. So if you're not the role model, how are they going to understand that it's okay, it's normal to have a career and to work and give it more importance sometimes mm-hmm. than like, you know, whether things are okay or not. I agree with, I agree with you. So let's start back. So family, how did the family dynamics work into this? You mentioned that you got, you and your husband traveled at the same time. And you also mentioned that Zoe was, you know, you know your daughter. You provided her with the independence. Your friends came into a cellular support system. You formed a community uh, where friends became family and your daughter was able to adapt in many different people's houses and was able to like, you know, understand that you both of you had your careers and so on, was able to absorb it. So that is so beautiful, like how you've done. And, you know, for especially for girl children to learn that right from the get-go, that you don't have to be tied to something because of a certain societal pressure or a concept. You just do whatever it is that makes you happy. And one of the points that you mentioned truly rings a bell to me as well, in the sense like you mentioned that if I am happy, you will be happy. If I'm not happy, the mother is not happy, the father is not happy, the kids are not going to be happy, right? So that's where our self-care comes and all the concept comes. Do whatever it is to make yourself happy so you can spread the happiness to everyone, including your children. So that's a really very well said right there, Shweta. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I just feel, and you know, there are many times I I feel that I think this is, it's very simple, right? This whole equation. And I, I was raised by a mother who thought similarly. She mm-hmm. chose to not leave Mumbai because she saw when my father got transferred for five years and very important five years of a growing child from when I was five to when I turned 10. Those five years, my father got transferred through his work to a city uh, in Madhya Pradesh called Indore. Um, and, you know, at that point, he asked my mom, okay, so should we leave? Because, you know, I'm going to be there for five whole years. It's going to be hard to stay away. And this is in the 90s. So, you know, it was a very difficult and different time uh, to be a remotely married couple, but remote family even. Yeah. You know, there was no FaceTime. There was none of all of that. There were only trunk calls. And then there were every possible holiday that you, you know, took a train and went to see your father and spend with him. Mm-hmm. But, you know, just even the integral years of not having your dad around for five like five to 10, age five to 10 is, was huge. My mom um, had just started her job as a teacher in Mumbai and she had actually come from MP to Mumbai because she got married to my father, just started her career as a teacher in the municipal corporation, had gotten me to go into a school sort of from K- KG, kindergarten onwards. And she's like, you know, we are both settled here. Me in my career and my daughter in school with her friends. Mm-hmm. I don't want to break her friendships and I don't want to uh, create a lull in my career. So why don't you move and we'll come every holiday and you come back every holiday and we'll try to make this work because it's only five years anyways, isn't it? That's awesome. Great. You know, I think so. This is, I was raised by someone like this, you know, it was not normal to do this in the 80s or 90s. And, uh, you know, the fact that she did that, she was a Hindi speaking lady in a Marathi speaking state, she taught herself how to speak Marathi. She speaks broken Marathi even today, but she got her way around the place. Uh-huh. Without having my dad to like have to take her everywhere or do things. Uh-huh. And so that's, that was her story, which became, I think, my story eventually, right? Because yeah. our mother's story become ours eventually. So, so true. this is exactly what happened. And I feel that's why for me, it was very okay to, uh, to be part of a remote family like we are today. Um, and also to normalize the fact that, you know, a child can still be raised. It's fine. Like yeah. I went to crashes and I was raised by neighbors and things like that. So, mm-hmm. so this worked. 
you know? Yeah, yeah. I, I remember, Shweta, you know, you mentioned uh, in our pre-prep, you know, conversation that the sustainability mantra is not only in your uh, business, but it's yeah. also a lifestyle that you're trying to, uh, you know, imbibe in your child, Zoe, right? The less right. is more value system. Because, I mean, clearly, you know, what we live in today is more is more, right? So right. can you tell us how you're doing that? So, yeah, we've always, as a family, believed in less is more. Um, and, you know, luckily, my husband has always sort of also followed that strategy. Um, and he uh, and I have now raised our daughter to think like that. We are not sure how successful we are because our daughter is obviously impressionable. Mm-hmm. Her peers may or may not think similarly. She does have demands. Um, she doesn't realize sometimes when they are wants and not needs. Right. And so, you know, we're not sure how far is going to go with her. But at home, as a family in general, we're all about less is more. Mm-hmm. Now, that could be less is more in terms of square footage that we choose to live in. The number of clothes we choose to own, the number of coats we choose to own, the shoes we choose to own, or any of that. The only thing we allow ourselves to splurge as a family is on travel. Mm -hmm. And that's because we find that there's, you know, just any amount of travel is not enough for one Mm -hmm. Mm lifetime. Because of the way it can just change the way you you grow when you travel. Mm -hmm. Um, And you see the world and you realize and you become more of a humble person, which is very, very important also in raising our child. Mm -hmm. Because we always tell her she's highly privileged. And she doesn't know half of what, uh, you know, the lives of other children all around the world Mm -hmm. could be like. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so yeah, less is more has always been, it's my mantra since my architecture days. That's awesome. You know, and uh, it's something that I follow even now. And uh, we've realized it's great. It's great to be clutter-free. It's great to have a life of less because then, you know, you can move with it wherever you want to. And we've moved so many times. (laughs) And I think we have only because we've had less. If we had more, we would always be sort of bogged down by the baggage of it. Right. Um, But it's been great. It's been great to just sort of, if you have less, you can fly. And I think that's (laughs) good. We're light like that. Yeah. So, I mean, wrapping this up, I mean, this amazing conversation, what is your vision for 8,000 miles? You know, what is your dream for the future, not only for 8,000 miles, but even for the fashion industry? What do you hope to see? I really, really hope, uh, you know, the fashion industry is getting there. I know because there's a lot of endeavor towards it from very, very big brands as well. But I really hope the fashion industry can set a a trend in that people realize that fashion really is something that you create for yourself. And that comfort comes over fashion. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not something that you need to follow. There's no need to follow a trend. You can create the trend. Um, I think that's that's something that is very, very important to me because I've always wanted to subscribe to that. I don't like big brands. I don't buy bags because they have initials of big brand designers on them because mm-hmm. they don't serve my purpose. Mm-hmm. They are not mm-hmm. unique. You're just one of like many people uh, doing that. So I think to me, uh, you know, the fashion industry is going to be better if it sort of accentuates the fact that people have to, you know, just sort of thrive in their individuality. Yeah, because I feel like when you and you have so many big brands telling you every single season what's in trend and what's not, and you know when you wear white, when you don't wear white, and all of these umpteen number of fashion rules and things like that, right? It's almost like, like you said, you know, you you lose individuality, right? Because everybody is doing the same thing. Like for example, like you know, I'm big into fashion. When I look through my Instagram feed. At one point, I'm like, wait, why is everyone looking the same? Whether it's home decor, whether it's fashion, right. everybody starts looking the same. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I feel like fashion is just a form of self-expression, isn't it? So really, it should be very, very different and unique and comfortable for what you are about. You know, it, it has to be a reflection of you and your tastes and your aesthetics and your design. Right. So mm-hmm. that's one thing that I hope the fashion industry can start exemplifying more than it does right now. Um, along with the fact that, you know, and with that comes everything else. It's sort of like a domino effect. When people realize that, they will make use of what they own as against go running to buy something that should be owned. Correct. And so there'll be less wastage, less purchase, and therefore not as much wastage, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think there's there's that. Um, for 8,000 miles, I've always dreamt of having a store. Mm-hmm. Um, I have always dreamt of. It's, it's, it's a very... Uh, impractical desire given the fact that like there's all these costs that go right right like that Mm -hmm. but at some point because I'm such a you know people communicator and connector and you know sort of event person I've always liked the idea of having this sort of lifestyle space which can lend itself to talks and workshops and things as well Um, but at the same time also be sort of this space for other designers that think like me to come in and exhibit and do things Mm -hmm. I don't know if you'll ever get there like I said it's an impractical thing to feel but for now we're just sort of going up on that ladder of scale that I talked to you earlier about Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know we're um, we've been doing textiles now for the last couple of years i did a lot of designing in my own new space. So at some point, maybe that's where it's going to go as well. That's awesome. Um, so that's that's really the hope that it just goes, you know, and continues to be the way it is. We have stores uh, lined up pretty much all around the world at this point, which we're happy about because they're return customers. Uh, they believe in us, in our designs. They, mm-hmm. they want things that are new that we keep doing every year and they stick with us. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the idea is to just keep the business growing more and more every year for now. Wonderful. Very nice, Shweta. This is so, I have to say that I, we, we always record our podcast in the morning and we yeah. meet such <laughs> fabulous women that we talk to and it gives a nice start to our day. And I have to say that the conversation with you is just a nice kicker for the day and I'm just going to re- think about some of the things that you said especially the family dynamics and work-life balance yeah, yeah. and the thank you so much it's so it's so <laughs> nice to know you two women too because both of you are like perfect examples of where we should go as South Asian women right <laughs> um, and I think it's awesome that we, we've just got together like yes and we should um, you know continue this friendship yes for sure yeah, yeah. and we good luck to you and good luck to the brand uh, please everyone check it check out 8000 miles and um, after hearing Shweta's uh, inspirational story I'm sure many of the women in the audience would be thinking about um, something that they've always wanted to do and uh, probably will take the next steps. Thank you, Shweta. This was truly, truly a wonderful conversation. Enjoy them. Thank you, Rama. Thank you, Shweta. This was great. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you so much. So until next time, bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Do continue to give us your valuable feedback via ratings, reviews, and hit the subscribe or follow button so you don't miss out on our new episodes. Your support means the world to us. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at chai underscore break underscore podcast to get the scoop on our latest episodes dropping every Wednesday. You can also write to us at chaibreakpodcast at gmail.com.